Well, good evening. It is a joy to be here. Um, we very much appreciate uh, the ministry of this church to our family. Uh, many, many, uh, many, many of you and others have been a tremendous impact upon uh, the lives of my family. And we, we appreciate it. It's good to come back and to meet new friends and to see some old friends and to see some extremely old friends. Uh, it's been a wonderful week. I hope you've appreciated the messages this week. They've been, they've been uh, really inspirational. And uh, the scripture reading this evening... Uh, reminds me of, of what I was thinking about even this afternoon as, as I was going over the message, how timeless the Word of God is. Uh, and even though it was written thousands of years ago, it is so applicable to us today. Almost too applicable. It, it really uh, shines a mirror shines a light uh, upon our lives. Well, I trust that it'll do that again this evening. I'm taking for my text some, something that uh, Pastor Casey read last night in the scripture reading as he read the last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be concentrating most of our thoughts this evening on Verse number 58, a very familiar verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I want us to, first of all, uh, see these people to whom Paul is writing. Now, if I were to say we're going to look at the epistle that we call 1 Corinthians, to whom do you think he was writing? The people at Corinth, right? The Corinthians. Makes sense. Now, Paul didn't label this book 1 Corinthians. Now, that came later for our benefit. Uh, but he was writing to a, a, group of, uh, a group of people who did not have the advantage of 60 years of experience. This church was probably at this writing somewhere in the neighborhood of three years old. Look back at the very first few verses that Paul writes to these folks. Because I want, us, I want us to see exactly who he was writing to. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Get this part. With all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. 
Yes, this book was specifically written to the Corinthians. But by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who can see down through the ages, He's writing it to us. To all of us in every place that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. This is written to you and to me. That last little phrase kind of always throws me off a little bit. It says, With all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now, I'm thinking, what does that phrase describe? It must be, must be clarifying something. It's not, not that we have two lords. I think it's talking, I think it's referring back to the word place. Those in every place both theirs and ours. The Holy Spirit saw you and me. And he caused the Apostle Paul to write another amazing, timeless letter. Very appropriate for us, even in our present day. He was writing to a young church. Um, this was written from Ephesus on Paul's third missionary journey. He had actually founded the church at Corinth on his second missionary journey. And he ministered there for probably 18 months. You might remember the names of Aquila and Priscilla. They helped him start this church. Many folks were saved. Even, even the leader of the synagogue uh, got saved. Many people. Something about the city of Corinth. Give us a little historical context. Uh, you know, Greece is kind of, a, kind of a peninsula in the Mediterranean Sea. It's got a northern part and it's got a little southern section. And between... Between the northern section and the southern section is an isthmus. You know what an isthmus is? It's just like a little narrow bridge of land that connects the northern to the southern parts of Greece. Corinth was on that isthmus. Therefore, it was a major thoroughfare. Many people from all over the world would go uh, through that isthmus. In addition to that, history tells us that sailors uh, were very reluctant to go underneath, many uh, times of the year, underneath the southern part of Greece because the weather was terrible. It was treacherous. It was dangerous. And so often, industrious sailors would actually pull up to that isthmus and pull their boat on skids or rollers across the isthmus to the other side so they could continue on uh, west. Again, many, many people were uh, introduced to this city of Corinth. Now, I come from a, uh, a city in San Francisco that is very, very international. That's not always a good thing. 
Because when you have people from every culture, every part of the world, you have a lot of different things influencing your culture. And that's what happened in Corinth. Corinth, like a lot of the Greek cities, had an acropolis about 2,000 feet above sea level. Up there was also a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. Assisting in the worship there were a thousand priestesses. It was very well known for its debauched worship. The problem in Corinth, the problem in the church of Corinth, not only was that they were immature and they were young, but they had taken on many, many of the ideas of their local culture. And Paul writes this first letter to Corinth because there were a lot of difficulties, a lot of problems. They were, first of all, as he writes the letter, he talks to them about their childish behavior in dividing into small little groups based on different preachers. Now, we're going to have, what, 11 preachers here this week? Can you imagine that, you know, after all the preachers leave, that everybody kind of gets together and says, well... Which one of them are we going to root for? I mean, which one are we going to follow? And we've got a group over here of, of Perryites and a group over here of Watkinisms. And, and you would say, what? who would even think of that? Who would even attempt that? I mean, what would even be the purpose of that? Paul says, don't do that. Christ is not divided. Follow Christ. There were a couple of very serious morality difficulties uh, in the Corinthian church. In one case, he says, you've got to rid the church of this person. In another case, he said, stop what you're doing. They, they thought, well, it was okay. It's common. It's ordinary. After all, it, it's, it, it doesn't affect me spiritually. It's just... Just uh, outside of the body, he says, what? Know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They were misguided about marriage. And singleness. Brother Asai, he's a cheerleader for marriage. We, we heard about that last night. Uh, but you know what? There's also God's grace that gives some the gift of singleness. And God's grace is sufficient. He had to straighten them out on that. They... They had all kinds of problems 
uh, about Christian liberty. Should we eat this and shouldn't we eat that? And what if somebody's unsaved? And I mean, there were, there, it was complex. Yeah. It's even complex when we read it. What should I do and how should I handle things? But he sets them straight about our Christian liberty. Oftentimes, your pastor will have the Lord's table, and as, as you celebrate the communion, I imagine he, as most other pastors, will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and recite the order that Paul instructs regarding the Lord's table. They were getting that wrong too. They were having dinners before the Lord's table. They were shunning those who didn't have enough. Disrespecting part of the body of Christ because of their economic status. That ought not so to be. He talked to them at length about spiritual gifts that should edify the church. If I were to ask you, what is the definitive chapter in all the New Testament about love, what would you say? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, Among all, while we're exercising all these wonderful spiritual gifts that we have, uh, this is not to be lifted up so you can be recognized. I mean, I, you could have all the gifts, you could have all the knowledge, but if you don't have love, you're just making a lot of noise. Pursue love, he tells them. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where our text is tonight, he gives us an amazing treatise on the resurrection. You can remember 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. I'm so thankful that Paul wrote this letter. But in the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Christ is risen. This is not an imaginary thing. 500 or more people saw it. It is real. He lives. The risen Christ is our hope. Because He is risen, one day we will rise. Because He's risen, He'll return, destroy His enemies, and we will reign. We will reign with Him. We will rise one day and be given glorious, incorruptible bodies. And then he brings it up to a huge crescendo in the last few verses. Christ's resurrection has won the final victory over death and hell. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he comes to verse number 58. Therefore, therefore encapsulates the looking back portion of this of the sermon because 
because you are saints, despite all the difficulties you might have in church, because all of all that is accomplished and sealed by the resurrection of Christ, therefore. Now, what's he going to tell us? What's he going to tell us after all of that? You know, about 300 years after this letter was written, another man comes on the scene. He is touted even today as an amazing author, amazing philosopher. We know him as Aristotle, another Greek. As an English teacher, I would often refer students to Aristotle's elements of circumstance, he called it. He, he wanted to teach people how to write well. And so we often use his formula. We call them the five W's. Who, what, when, where, and why. He would often add a, a fifth and a sixth, but these were the main ones. If you, want your, if you want your message to make sense, if you want it to be complete, if you're gathering information, if you're problem solving, you have to answer these questions. Well, you know, no matter how brilliant or eloquent Aristotle was, uh, he cannot compare to the perfect, inerrant, infallible author of God's Word. But you know what this verse in 1 Corinthians 50, 15, 58 follows his pattern rather well. Let's look first. Who? Who? We know a little bit about the Corinthians from the first part of the letter, but look how Paul addresses them here in this verse. My beloved brethren. My beloved brethren. Are you familiar with the word agape? Yes, godly, unselfish, giving, love. Well, this is the adjective form of agape. It's agape loss. And he's calling them my beloved brethren. You know what? You are loved. You are loved. Surrounding all the fond memories that we have uh, of this place, the fact that we felt loved was major. We felt loved and cared for. And when you walk into Calvary Baptist Church, you enter, you enter a safe place where no matter what your background, no matter what your status, no matter what you may think of yourself, people will love you. Amen. They will care for you. Not just say, I love you, 
but in action will love you. And that's important for any church. Well, that's the who, my beloved brethren. Let's look at the what. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be. Be. How do you be? How can you be something? Do you just wake up one morning and you were something before and now you are something else because you wanted to be something? It's, it's kind of an unusual command, isn't it? Be. This is, this is such a, a beautiful word, though. It, it's such an interesting way that the Holy Spirit puts this together. It's a word that means to become. But it also means to receive being. I can't just wave a magic wand and, and be something. But I can become something. I can allow an outside agent to help me become something. This, in the Greek grammar, is what we call the middle voice. Now, we have that in English, too, but in the Greek grammar, it's, it's a little bit different. What it means is, you, you probably have heard others say that a word is either passive or active. In other words, um, the passive form, the subject is being acted upon. The active form, the subject is doing the action. Well, this is the middle voice where both things are happening. He's both doing the action and receiving the action. Now, there's a, a, a very interesting verse that explains this even better, at least in my mind. It's over in Luke. And the setting is this. There is a huge storm brewing. The winds are blowing. The waves are raging. And the experienced sailors in a boat are afraid they're going to die. And Jesus is asleep in the boat. And Luke 8.24 says this, And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was calm. The word ceased is in the middle voice. Did the wind and the waves cease of their own volition? The Bible says they ceased. Yes, they ceased. They did that action. But it was only because they obeyed the voice of the master of the winds and the waves. Do you see how that works? 
That's how it is when he says, we should be. Be. We surrender. We obey. We take heed to the voice of the Master. We allow Him to do His work in us. That's our part. And He does the work that helps us to become what it is He wants us to be. Well, what does He want us to be? Well, let me stop first. Something catches my attention here. The next word is ye. Be ye. Uh, I love this old English word. It, it really leaves no doubt about who he's talking to. Now, we don't have a, an English equivalent, at least in California. Now, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if you know much about my early life, I don't think you do, but my father graduated from Bible college, and I was about two years old, and he became the director of Youth for Christ in Savannah, Georgia, and so I spent 10 years in Savannah, Georgia. We had a word like ye. It was y'all. <laughs> y'all. Yeah. Y'all. What does that mean? That means all of you, right? Yeah. He, he's not just talking to a few people. He's not just talking to the Corinthians. We already know he's talking to us. And he says, all of you, None of you can get out of this. All of you. Be. What is it that we're to be? The first thing is steadfast. Steadfast. This is a word that really means like sedentary. It's like sitting down and not moving. Steadfast. But it also means to be sure, to be settled. It begs the question are, are we sure and settled in our faith? Do we know what we believe? First of all, you need to be sure and settled in the fact that you are a child of God and on your way to heaven. He's writing to young Christians here. And he says, you need to be sure, you need to be well grounded in the faith. Do you know what you believe? Are you susceptible to every wind of doctrine? Do you chase the next shiny gospel thing? Or are you sure in what you believe? The next word is unmovable. Sounds like the same thing, right? Steadfast, unmovable. This word is, the, uh, is used only once in the New Testament, right here. This is the only time. Unmovable, this means 
you will not be moved from your place. Once you're sure and settled and grounded in your faith, that's where you stay. Steadfast, unmovable. How can I do that? How can I just not move? I mean, he's not asking me not to think. He's not asking me not to imagine. He's given us wonderful, creative minds. How How can I not wonder if everything I believe is... How can I not be moved from my faith? It makes me think of what Paul wrote to the Romans when he said, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can be unmovable because God is unmovable. We don't have to do the unmovable part. We just have to stick with Him. He's not going to move. He's not going to move us away from His Word. He's not going to move us away from His love. Impossible. Be steadfast. Be unmovable. The next thing is abounding. I like this. It almost reminds me of an athletic term uh, because it means giving it all you've got. Don't hold anything back. Do more than just the minimum. Do more than just what it takes to get by. Abound in your Christian life. Some of us operate in our Christian life with, with a little bit of fear, you know. After all, if, I, if I'm that dogmatic, I mean, if I'm that vocal, uh, people will think I'm a fanatic, I'm, I'm crazy. We're told to be abounding. The word means to superabound in, in quality as well as in quantity. Excessive, abundant, enough and to spare. It's to exceed, it's to excel, it's to do with excellence. And that's the kind of things that our Christian life should be characterized by. You know what? That won't always look the same. God has blessed you with gifts that's different than every other person in this room. The circumstances of your life are different than everyone else. God uses all of those things. Don't sit back and say, well, I don't have this and I can't do that. So I can't participate in this this, uh, excelling in my Christian living. You can. It doesn't have to look like the way I do it. Or Pastor Casey does it. Uh, 
You don't have to wear a suit and a tie to do it. I hope I'm not speaking sacrilegious here. You may only have one change of clothes. You can still excel for Christ. That doesn't matter. And again, I'll guarantee you, if you walk into Calvary Baptist Church and you look different, you act different, you are employed in an unusual way, no one's going to care. You're walking into the family. You're walking into the family of God. Come as you are. God will meet you here. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding. That's the win. Always. Always. I know that uh, we can't work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our bodies need rest. God commands us to rest. Even Jesus took time away from the multitudes to rest. Take times of solitude to pray, to get that spiritual, emotional, physical recuperation that we all need. But never once did Jesus, Jesus say, you know what? I quit. I give up. I've sacrificed enough. Let somebody else do it for a while. You know, our jobs end, our careers end, projects get finished. But our ministry and our mission never ends. At Calvary Baptist Church of San Francisco, our mission statement is this. Love God. Love others. Make disciples. That never ends. We should be excelling and abounding. Always. As long as you have a voice, you can love God, love others, and make disciples. As long as you can type on a keyboard, as long as you can wield a pen, you can disciple others. No matter who you are, where you live, what your situation is, you can love God. You can love others. You can encourage and help and disciple others. Always abounding. Well, that's the when. How about where? Where are we going to do all of this? Look what he says. In the work of the Lord. In the work of the Lord. You might say, I work. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's a four-letter word. 
um, I don't like the sound of that. I don't want to get involved in any organization, you know, any movement that, you know, involves work. Uh, you know, I can find plenty of places where, you know, I'm just a fly on the wall. Um, in fact, why does it even say work? Isn't it true that Christ already did everything? Didn't he take care of everything and now I don't have to do anything? Well, yes, Christ did all the heavy lifting. He died for you so that you wouldn't have to die and pay for your own sins. He did everything necessary for our redemption, our justification, our sanctification. He paid the price for our mansion in heaven. But you know what? With such riches bestowed upon us comes some responsibility. He asks us to join him in the work of the Lord, in his work. He has chosen us to be a part of that great mission, to invite others into our family. Notice that it's the work of the Lord. It's the work of the Lord. Do you know what the work, you know what the word Lord means? It means the person who owns me is my Lord. It means my master. It means the one who has all of the decision-making authority. The work of the Lord. We have to give him complete control. You know, we often, we often debate with God and argue with God. You know, I don't want to do that. I, I, you know, I don't want to go there. Do I have to do this? But let's pray like Christ prayed. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's the kind of respect and honor that our Lord deserves. Then we come to my favorite question. Why? Why? My beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Look at that first phrase. For as much as you know. Sometimes we just kind of read right past that and get to the meat of the idea. 
But what's he saying there? For as much as you know. We might say, if you know anything, you ought to know this. It has, has the connotation, connotation of seeing and perceiving. If you can see anything, if you can comprehend anything, if you can understand anything, understand this. Your pastor might come to the end of the message some Sunday morning and say, Hey, if you've been asleep up to now, this is the time to wake up. This is what you need to hear. This is the important part. This is a great encouragement to us. If you know anything, you ought to know this. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Oh, labor, there's that word again. Well, I've got good news and I've got bad news about this word. This word is not the same word as work. The bad news is this is not the same word as work. This word carries with it persecution, the possibility of trouble, the idea of toil, blood, sweat, and tears kind of labor. This is intense, hard labor. What he's saying here is no matter the cost, no matter how hard it gets. And it's getting harder. It's getting intense in some areas of our country to even be a Christian. People are becoming very leery about advertising that they're a Christian. It's dangerous. No matter what the cost, it's not in vain. That word translated in vain means it's not empty. It's not void. It's not without reward. This labor, this intense labor, is filled with blessing and fruit and purpose and spiritual wealth. Paul writes to these same Corinthians in a second letter, and he says this, For our light affliction which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What's he saying? Whatever we have to go through, whatever toil we endure, it is nothing, nothing to be compared to the glory 
that we'll see in heaven. It's worth it. It's not in vain. But then he says, it's not in vain in the Lord. Have you ever just sat and contemplated what it means to be in the Lord? In the Lord, in Christ? It's, I can't comprehend the fact that before the foundations of the world, God saw me, and he saw you, and he chose us, and he gave us this ministry. He gave us this work to do. We are in the Lord. The one who is sovereign over all things, he honors us with the opportunity and the privilege to join him in this work. He could do it all without us. He doesn't need us in heaven. He could have shut this thing down eons ago. But he loves us. He gave himself for us. And he invites us into this work. He's our Lord. He's our master. And he's working in all of our labor for our good and his glory. I'll say one more thing about the why of it all. And we'll be finished. Why are we willing? Why do we get excited about being steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? You know, early in Jesus' ministry, he was healing the sick and he was casting out demons. Multitudes of people began to follow him. And he went up into a mountain with his disciples and he gathered them around and he began to teach them some of the fundamental truths that they will need to be effective ministers of the gospel. And among those truths, he, he taught them this. Ye are the salt of the earth. Or should I say, y'all are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Don't hide your light. In fact, he offered up this command to them and to us. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's why. 
the ministry He's given to us, it's different for all of us. But our lights should be shining, and men should be seeing, and men will see the difference. And they'll, they'll say, wow, you must have a great God. They will glorify him. Because you're in the work of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, there are no words that compare to your words. I pray that you'll help us to study them diligently. I pray that you'll enable us to to understand them, understand them rightly. I pray that you'll give us grace to apply them correctly. Give us the opportunity to proclaim them. It's for your glory and in your name that we ask for these blessings. Amen.